Father, we rejoice. We rejoice to know that our brothers and sisters across the world have the great opportunity that we do to have and to read and to study Your Word on our own. Father, that our languages have been translated in a way that we can know Your Word without going to great lengths. And we thank You that You have accomplished that for us and that You continue to do that all throughout the world, that Your name would be glorified through the means of which You have communicated to us in Your Bible. We pray, God, You continue to do this work, that You, um, that you help Your translators throughout the world to persevere in such a difficult and important task. We pray, God, that we, uh, given the opportunity, would be able to uh, assist in those labors however we can. Lord, we rejoice with our brothers and sisters in receiving the Word just this last year. We pray, Lord, now that You would bless this time, that we would be encouraged and strengthened and challenged by the life and ministry of the Reverend David Brainerd. God, be with us now for Your glory and for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to, <coughs> at the beginning, share with you a few um, books. If you're uh, wanting to learn more or search more out um, after tonight that you can look to um, that have been very helpful to me in this, um, one is called David Brainerd, A Flame for God, uh, by Vance Christie, a good biography of David Brainerd. Uh, a section of this uh, book is a series of books by John Piper, but this one called The Hidden Smile of God, and there's a chapter in there on David Brainerd, and uh, also one that I'll be referring to uh, frequently this evening is The Diary and Journal of David Brainerd, which was actually the compiled work of Jonathan Edwards. In addition to these, and this one, I have one copy if you want it, um, that will be available tonight, um, and I can order more if you'd like. Now, in addition to these, Volume 2 of the works of Jonathan Edwards were very helpful, and also Religious Encyclopedia and Philip Schaff. So I'm going to tell you up front that so many have done such a great work with uh, the life and ministry of David Brainerd that um, much of what I'm saying tonight is from them, um, so... Don't give me too much credit. I'm simply delivering what they've put together. Uh, I will be quoting extensively from Brainerd's uh, journal and diary uh, itself as a primary resource. Uh, David Brainerd was born on April 20th, 1718 in Haddam, Connecticut. His father, Hezekiah, was a Connecticut legislature and he died when David was nine years old. Hezekiah was a rigorous Puritan. He had very strong views on authority and strictness at home. And he, uh, he pursued a very earnest devotion. It included days of private fasting that promoted spiritual welfare. And you'll see how that translated into the life of David as we move along. Brainerd's mother was Dorothy. And she married Hezekiah and already had a two-year-old son. Uh, Jeremiah Mason by her first husband. Altogether, Hezekiah and Dorothy together had nine children. Hezekiah and Dorothy were the two oldest. Nehemiah, Jerusha, 
Martha, David, John, Elizabeth, and Israel. So if you're counting, that's 12 people under one roof. Now, details are a little sketchy about the childhood of the Brainerds uh, and their upbringing. It's likely they received their education at home, uh, probably focusing on reading, writing, arithmetic, and the catechism. Records show in their community there was a small schoolhouse, but nevertheless, they might have attended there some. But in the end, David Brainerd was admitted into Yale College. He was at the top of his class, and so whatever his education was, it was very well done. When David was five years old, um, his uh, father died at the age of 46. When he was 14, his mother, Dorothy, died. Now, many of the Brainerd children, they uh, died at very young ages. His brother, Nehemiah, died at 32. His brother, Israel, died at 23. His sister, Jerusha, died at 34. And David Brainerd himself died at the age of 29. And there's also a great tendency, you see, throughout the Brainerd family to succumb to great bouts of depression, or as you read through the diary, they, he speaks of it as melancholy. That was the word or the language used for depression in their time. This played significantly in David's life. In 1865, a descendant of the Brainerds, Thomas Brainerd, in a biography he was writing of David's brother John, he said, in the whole Brainerd family for 200 years, there has been a tendency to a morbid depression akin to hypochondria. David wrote at the very beginning of his diary, I was, I think, from my youth, something, something sober and inclined rather to melancholy than the other extreme. And looking back at the end of his life, looking back at his previous life, David later wrote that he did not remember having any uh, significant conviction of sin in his life before he was seven or eight years old. And then he became deeply convicted of his sin. He was concerned about the condition of his soul. He was terrified at the thought of dying. And by the sudden spiritual agitation, he was, he said, driven to the performance of duties. This would have included private prayer and, and Bible reading and, and such. But later he realized that his efforts were legalistic tendencies that proved to be, as he wrote, a melancholy business that destroyed my eagerness. And as it turns out, that early period of spiritual concern was very short-lived for David. After his mother died, he moved across the Connecticut River to East Haddam to live with his married sister, Jerusha. Now, he describes his spiritual life during this time as very careful and very serious, but having no true grace. He turned 19, he inherited a farm, he moved for a year a few miles west to Durham to try his hand at farming, but his heart was in no way in it, he simply was looking for an income. He longed for what he called a liberal education, and in fact, Brainerd was a scholar through and through, a very wonderful theologian, uh, very studious. 
After a year on the farm, he came back to East Haddam. He began to prepare himself to enter Yale College. This was in the summer of 1738. He was 20 years old when he entered the college, and during the year on the farm, he had made a commitment to God, he wrote, to enter the ministry. But the problem with that being that he was still yet unconverted. (laughs) So he read the Bible through twice that year, and he began to see more clearly in all of this that his religion was something of a legalistic tendency, simply based on his own efforts. And he said he had great quarreling with God through his soul in this time. He rebelled against original sin and the idea and teaching of that in the Bible. He rebelled against the strictness of the divine law, the purpose of God's law, of course. And he rebelled against the sovereignty of God, as he saw so clearly throughout the Scriptures. He quarreled with the fact that there was nothing that he could do in his own strength to commend himself to God. He knew that quite clearly as he read through the Scriptures. At the age of 20, he came to see that, quote, "...all my good frames were but self-righteousness." Not bottomed on a desire for the glory of God, but now the more I did in prayer or any other duty, the more I saw I was indebted to God for allowing me to ask for mercy. For I saw it was self-interest had led me to pray, and that I had never once prayed for any respect to the glory of God. Now I saw there was no necessary connection between my prayers and the bestowment of divine mercy that they laid not the least obligation upon God to bestow His grace upon me, and that there was no more virtue or goodness in them than there would be in my paddling with my hand in the water, which was the comparison I had in mind. And this, because they were not performed from any love or regard to God. I saw that I had been heaping up my devotions before God, fasting, praying, pretending, and indeed really thinking sometimes that I was aiming at the glory of God, whereas I never once truly intended it, but only my own happiness. I saw that I had never done anything for God. I had no claim of anything from Him, but perdition on account of my hypocrisy and mockery. Oh, how different did my duties now appear from what they used to do. I've heard these things from many people as they recount their conversion experience. And usually as I hear that, I say, Aha! It's too late at this point. No turning back. The Lord is summoning you to Himself. And we see that as you read through the diary. You see this unfolding in the life of Brainerd. And sure enough, this is when the miracle happened. The day of His new birth in Christ. Half an hour before sunset, at the age of 21, He was in a lonely place trying to pray. It was the Lord's Day, July 12, 1739. And He wrote, As I was walking in a dark, thick grave, unspeakable glory seemed to open to the view and apprehension of my soul. It was a new inward apprehension or view that I had of God such as I never had before, nor anything that I had the least remembrance of it, so that I stood still and wondered and admired. I had now no particular apprehension 
of any one person of the Trinity, either the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, but it appeared to be divine glory and splendor that I then beheld. And my soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God, such a glorious divine being. And I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that He should be God over all forever and ever. My soul was so captivated and delighted with the excellency, the loveliness and the greatness and other perfections of God that I was even swallowed up in Him, at least to that degree that I had no thought, as I remember at first, about my own salvation, or scarce that there was such a creature as I. Thus the Lord I trust brought me to a hearty desire to exalt Him, to set Him on the throne and to seek first His kingdom. In other words, principally and ultimately to aim at His honor and glory as the King and Sovereign of the universe, which is the foundation of the religion of Jesus. I felt myself in a new world. Two months after Brainerd's conversion, he entered Yale to prepare for the ministry. It was a very difficult beginning, and as we've heard, it was a, a young believer as he was entering his education. There was hazing by the upperclassmen. There was very little spirituality amongst the students. His studies were very difficult, and he got the measles and had to go home for several weeks during his first year of study. During that time, he wrote, I seem to be greatly deserted, and my soul mourned the absence of the Comforter exceedingly. It seemed to me all comfort was forever gone. I prayed and cried to God for help, yet found no present comfort or relief. But through divine goodness, a night or two before I was taken ill, while I was walking alone in a very retired place and engaged in meditation and prayer, I enjoyed a sweet, refreshing visit, as I trust, from above, so that my soul were raised far above the fears of death. Indeed, I rather longed for death than feared it. Oh, how much more refreshing this one season was than all the pleasures and delights the earth could afford. The next year, uh, Brainerd was sent home because he was so sick that he was spitting up blood. And so even at this early age... He had already uh, had the tuberculosis he was going to die from seven years later. Now, just to note, the amazing thing about uh, this may not be that he died so early and accomplished so little, but instead that being as sick as he was, that he lived as long as he did, and in that time accomplished so much, as we will talk about and when Brainerd came back to Yale in November 1740, the spiritual climate of the college was radically changed. George Whitfield, the great evangelist, spent much time in the Savannah area, had been there. And now many students were very serious all of a sudden about their faith, which suited Brainerd very well as a young believer. In fact, tensions were growing amongst these newly converted students and the faculty and the staff of Yale College. In 1741, evangelists uh, came to Yale only to grow the zeal of the students and their discontentment with the school's faculty. 
So the faculty invited Jonathan Edwards to come and to preach the commencement address in 1741, and they hoped that Jonathan Edwards would pour a glass of water on the fire that had started between the students and the faculty. They wanted to uh, squelch the enthusiasm of the students in this newfound zeal in the Lord. At this point, students were saying a great deal about the faculty and even saying that many of them were probably unconverted. So Edwards preached a sermon called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. Completely disappointed the faculty and the staff. Edwards argued that the work going on in the awakening of those days, and specifically amongst the students of Yale College, was a real spiritual work in spite of excesses that were going on. Now, uh, a side note, Brainerd lived through both of the great awakenings in, uh, in America during his lifetime. If you study those awakenings, you'll see that Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards, these are all great names uh, in these great awakenings, much of which happened in our own area. Now, the very morning of Edwards' preaching, just that morning before he came to preach, it had been voted by the trustees of the college that if any student of the college shall directly or indirectly say that the rector, either of the trustees or tutors, are hypocrites, carnal or unconverted men, he shall for the first offense make a public confession in the hall and for the second offense be expelled. So, by me telling you that, you see what's coming for David Brainerd. Brainerd was in the crowd as Edwards spoke. He was at the top of his class academically, but he was expelled in early 1742 during his third year. He was overheard to say that one of his tutors, Chauncey Whittlesley, that he, quote, has no more grace than a chair, and that he wondered why the rector did not drop down dead for fining students for their evangelical zeal. Now, in compiling uh, Brainerd's uh, journal and diaries later on, uh, many years later, Edwards, uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, inserted an, exp- an, an appendix to his writing, and he explained all of this expulsion and called it Why Brainerd Was Expelled from College. A very interesting read. This expulsion wounded Brainerd uh, deeply. Later on, in, uh, in April of 1743, he wrote of himself, Today I was greatly oppressed with grief and shame, reflecting on my past conduct, my bitterness, and party zeal. I was ashamed to think that such a wretch as I had ever preached, Long to be excused from that work, my heart was overwhelmed within me. I verily thought I was the meanest, vilest, most helpless, guilty, ignorant, benighted creature ever living. And yet I knew what God had done for my soul at the same time. Sometimes I was assaulted with damping doubts and fears whether it was possible for such a wretch as I to be in a state of grace. So over the next several years he tried again and again to make things right at Yale. Even several people lobbying on his behalf, but all of this to no avail. And commenting on this uh, in his biographical uh, chapter, John Piper wrote, God had another plan for Brainerd. Instead of a quiet six years in the pastorate or lecture hall followed by death and a little historical significance at all, God meant to drive him into the wilderness 
that he might suffer for his sake and make an incalculable impact on the history of missions, which is exactly what happened, as we'll see. Now, before this way was cut off for him to the pastorate, Brainerd had no thought of being a missionary to the Indians. It was not something he had even considered. But now he had to rethink his whole life. Uh, There was a law that was recently passed before his expulsion that no established minister could be installed in a Connecticut church who had not graduated from Harvard, Yale, or a European university. I'd be out. So Brainerd felt cut off from his life calling. One careless word spoken in haste, and Brainerd's life seemed to fall apart before his eyes. But God knew better. Brainerd came to accept it eventually. In the summer of 1742, a group of ministers sympathetic to the Great Awakening, who were called the New Light Presbyterians, licensed Brainerd to preach. Jonathan Dixon, who was a leading Presbyterian in New Jersey, took interest in Brainerd. He tried time and again to get him back into Yale. And when this failed, the suggestion was made that David Brainerd might become a missionary to the Indians, to the Native Americans, under the sponsorship of the commissioners of the Society in Scotland for Propagating Christian Knowledge. So Dixon was one of those commissioners. And on November 25th, 1742, David Brainerd was examined for his fitness for the work and appointed as a missionary to the Indians. Speaking on this, Brainerd said, I could think of undergoing the greatest sufferings in the cause of Christ with pleasure and found myself willing, if God should order it, to suffer banishment from my native land to be among the heathen, that I might do something for their souls' salvation in distress and deaths of any kind. I felt weaned from the world and from my own reputation amongst men, willing to be despised and to be a gazing stock for the world to behold. So he spent the winter serving a church on Long Island so that he could enter the wilderness in the spring. His first assignment was to the uh, Hosatanic Indians in uh, Kaunameek, which was about 20 miles northwest of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where he was at the time, and where Edwards would eventually serve as a missionary to the Indians as well. He arrived April 1st, 1743. He preached for one year using an interpreter and trying to learn the language. He was alongside John Sargent, who was a veteran missionary in Stockbridge at the time. Uh, In that year, he was able to start a school for Indian children and to also translate some of the Psalms into the native language. His heart for the Indians began to grow. He even took ownership over their soul's condition. It's great to read along as as this is growing in uh, in his diaries. He wrote, in the forenoon, very disconsolate. In the afternoon, preached to, he called them, my people. And was a little discouraged in some hopes that God might bestow mercy on their souls. And he began to have this love and a desire to see them converted. After that, he was reassigned to go to the Indians along the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. And on May 1st, 1744, he left and settled in the forks of the Delaware, which was northeast of now Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. 
At the end of the month, he rode to Newark, New Jersey, to be examined by the presbytery there and was ordained on June 11, 1744. Now, Brainerd preached to the Indians at the Forks of the Delaware for one year. On June 19, 1745, he made his first preaching tour to the Indians at Cross Weeksung, New Jersey. This was a place where God moved in amazing power and brought awakening and blessing to the Indians through the work of David Brainerd. Within a year there, there were 130 persons in his ministry. It was growing and they were assembling as believers. The whole Christian community moved from Crosswicksung to Cranberry in May 1746 to have their own land, to have their own village, and therefore, of course, their own church. Now, Brainerd stayed with these Indians until he was too sick to minister, and in November of 1746, he left Cranberry to spend four months trying to recuperate in Elizabethtown at the house of Jonathan Dixon. On March 20th, 1747, Brainerd made one last visit to his friends, the Indians, and then he rode to the house of Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts, arriving in May 28, 1747. He made one trip to Boston during that summer, he returned, and he died of tuberculosis in Edwards' home on October 9th, 1747, 29 years old. So it was a short life. 29 years, 5 months, and 19 days he lived. Only 8 of those years as a Christian. And only 4 of those years as a missionary. So the big question here is, why has Brainerd's life made the impact that it has? And I'll explain what that impact is in a bit. One obvious reason, of course, is that Jonathan Edwards took the writings, the diaries, and, uh, and the journals of Brainerd, and he published them in, uh, in the life of Brainerd, was what it was called. It expanded to the life and diary of David Brainerd. William Carey, the great missionary, regarded Edwards' uh, work, uh, as he put it together, as a sacred text. He said it was important to read uh, right underneath the Bible. Robert Morrison and Robert Murray McShane of Scotland and John Mills of America and Frederick Schwartz of Germany and David Livingston of England and Andrew Murray of South Africa and Jim Elliott of Modern America. Great names of some wonderful missionaries. All of them look upon Brainerd with a kind of awe that drew, and they drew power from his life and his writings. They were very encouraged and challenged by what he wrote. Brainerd's life is a vivid, powerful testimony of the truth of God and what it does to us as we are weak and sick and discouraged and beat down and lonely and struggling as the saints of God. You see in the life of David that he cried out to God day and night to accomplish amazing things for his glory. In his introduction to the life and diary of David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards wrote this. A few days before his death, David ordered some part of his diary to be destroyed, which renders the account of his life less complete. And there are some parts of his diary here left out for brevity's sake that would, I am sensible, have been a great advantage to the history if they had been included, particularly the account of his wonderful successes among the Indians, which for substance is the same in his private diary, which was, has already been made public in the journal he kept by order of the Society of Scotland for their information. 
So he kept a journal because he was told to by the sending society, but he also had his private diary. And both of those were compiled, less the, uh, the parts of the diary that he asked to have destroyed. Now, what you have to remember as I'm quoting parts of his diary, and if you have the opportunity to read it, and I hope you will, Brainerd's diary was something he was composing for his private reflection. So he wrote in his diary with utter frankness. And I suppose for me personally, this is why it's so fascinating to read and, uh, and it's very soul-stirring. Many, many times reading through his diary has moved me to tears to read this man's heart and, and what he was enduring. So because this is very private, he makes no attempt to conceal or to justify his own spiritual shortcomings and his struggles. Uh, but he spoke of them in the plainest and most severest terms that he could think of. Now, on the other side of that, he didn't seek to rein in his most intense spiritual devotion for fears that other would read it and think of him as self-aggrandizing. This is as raw as it gets, and I'm very thankful for it. We don't get to see this in the life of many saints. Now, several things that Brainerd struggled with. First, throughout his life, he struggled with almost constant sickness. And, of course, we could look at the time of the 1700s and say that many people were sick often, but uh, more than usual in David Brainerd's life. He had to drop out of college uh, for some weeks early on, as I said already, because he had begun to cough up blood. In May of 1744, he wrote this. Rode, he went everywhere on horse, rode several hours in the rain through the howling, uh, howling wilderness, although I was so disordered in body that little or nothing but blood came from me. Through his diary, he writes things like this. In the afternoon, my pain increased exceedingly, and I was obliged to betake myself to bed was sometimes almost bereaved of the exercise of my reason by the extremity of pain. August 1746. Having lain in cold sweat all night, I coughed much bloody matter this morning and was under great disorder of body and not a little melancholy. One month later, he wrote, Exercise with a violent cough and a considerable fever, had no appetite to any kind of food and frequently brought up what I ate as soon as it was down and oftentimes had little rest in my bed by reason of pains in my breast and back, was able, however, to road over to my people about two miles every day and take some care of those who were there at work upon a small house for me to reside in amongst the Indians." In May 1747, Jonathan Edwards, at Jonathan Edwards' house, the doctors told him that he had incurable consummation and did not have long to live. In the last couple of months of his life, the suffering was incredible. September 24th, he wrote, In the greatest distress that ever I endured, having an uncommon kind of hiccough, which either strangled me or threw me into a straining to vomit. Edwards comments that in the week before he died, he told me it was impossible for any to conceive of the, the distress he felt in his breast. He manifested much concern lest he should dishonor God by impatience under his extreme agony. 
which was such that he said the thought of enduring it one minute longer was almost insupportable. And the night before he died, he said to those around him that it was another thing to die than people had imagined. Brainerd's sickness was almost constantly present in his life, and yet he continued to press on and press on with his work. Now, in addition to the physical sickness, Brainerd also, as I've already mentioned, struggled with frequent bouts of depression or melancholy, as he called it. Now, in time, he began to understand his depression for what it was, what he suffered from before, uh, be, uh, different from what he did before his conversion. After his conversion, it seems in his writing that there seemed to be a rock of electing love under him that would catch him, that he would not fall so far into depression that it would keep him from doing his work, even though, uh, as he understood the love and grace and care of God, that he didn't always seem to uh, sense it in his life. Often his depression, now catch this, his depression was often a result of the hatred of his own remaining sinfulness. I want you to think about that. How often has your own sinfulness driven you to a state of depression? He wrote, "'Tis distressing to feel in my soul that hell of corruption which still remains in me." Sometimes this sense of unworthiness before God was so intense that he felt cut off from the very presence of God. January 23rd, 1743, he wrote, "'Scarce ever felt myself so unfit to exist as now. I saw I was not worthy of a place among the Indians where I am going. None knows but those that feel it what the soul endures that is sensibly shut out from the presence of God. Alas, tis more bitter than death. He often called his depression a form of, of death. February 3rd, 1745. My soul remember the wormwood and the gall. I might almost say hell of Friday last. And I was greatly afraid I should be obliged again to drink of that cup of trembling, which has unconceivably more bitter than death, and made me long for the grave more, unspeakably more, than for hid treasures. It caused him compounded misery, that his mental distress hindered his ministry and his devotion. Wednesday, March 9th, 1743. I rode 16 miles to Montauk and had some inward sweetness on the road, but something of flatness and deadness after I came there and had seen the Indians. I withdrew and endeavored to pray, but found myself awfully deserted and left and had an afflicting sense of my vileness and meanness. So at times he was completely immobilized by his distress. He couldn't even function anymore because his depression was so weighty. Tuesday, September 2nd, 1746. Was scarce ever more confounded with a sense of my own unfruitfulness and unfitness of my work than now. Oh, what a dead, heartless, barren, unprofitable wretch did I now see myself to be. My spirits were so low and my bodily strength so wasted that I could do nothing at all. At length, being much overdone, lay down on a buffalo skin, but sweat much of the whole night. 
So his pressing on in the midst of such discouragement has no doubt made him a source of encouragement to many, many missionaries who knew who know, even today, firsthand, uh, the kinds of pains that he endured. Along with his physical sickness and his depression, Brainerd also struggled uh, with uh, a great amount of loneliness. His diary very vividly displays the importance of close Christian community. He speaks of his need for that often. He tells of having to endure the profane talk of two strangers one night in April 1743. And he says, Oh, I long that some dear Christian knew my distress. A month later he wrote, Most of the talk I hear is either Highland Scotch or Indian. I have no fellow Christian to whom I might unbosom myself and lay open my spiritual sorrows and with whom I might take sweet counsel in conversation about heavenly things and join in social prayer. Now, many of us can empathize with him when he writes this. There are many with whom I can talk about religion, but alas, I find few with whom I can talk religion itself. But blessed be the Lord, there are some that love to feed on the kernel rather than the shell. Brainerd was alone in his ministry to the very end. The last 19 weeks of his life was really the only time he was attended to by anybody, and that was the daughter of Jonathan Edwards, Jerusha Edwards. She was 17 years old. She served as his nurse, and many speculate that there was a deep love between David Brainerd and Jerusha Edwards. Uh, but in the wilderness, as he was with the Indians, he was all alone and could only pour his soul out to God. And God kept him going. Brainerd also struggled with immense external hardships, things that were happening in the circumstances around him. He described his first mission station in May 1743. I live poorly with regard to the comforts of life. Most of my diet consists of boiled corn and hasty pudding. I lodge on a bundle of straw, and my labor is hard and extremely difficult, and I have little experience of success to comfort me. In August, he wrote, In this weak state of body, I was not a little distressed for want of suitable food. I had no bread, nor could I get any. I am forced to go or to send ten or fifteen miles for all the bread I eat, and sometimes it's moldy and sour before I eat it, if I get any considerable quantity at all. But through divine goodness, I had some Indian meal of which I made little cakes and fried them, yet felt contented with my circumstances and sweetly resigned to God. So he was frequently lost in the woods. He often found himself not knowing where he was. He must not have been an airborne ranger. He was exposed to cold. He was exposed to hunger. There are journal entries that he wrote that the, uh, about the details of his horse being stolen, his horse being poisoned, his horse breaking a leg. And he writes about even how the smoke from the fireplace often made uh, a room where they would start a fire in a small room, made it intolerable to his lungs. And he would have to go out in the cold to get his breath. And then the rest of the evening, he would not be able to sleep. 
But these external hardships, the things that he ran into constantly in circumstances, these were not his worst struggles. He was at peace in most of these circumstances. He knew that they, uh, they were to come because he had a very biblical worldview. He wrote, Such fatigues and hardships as these serve to wean me more from the earth, and I trust will make heaven the sweeter. Formerly, when I was thus exposed to cold and rain, etc., I was ready to please myself with the thoughts of enjoying a comfortable house, a warm fire, and other outward comforts. But now, these have less place in my heart through the grace of God, and my eye is more to God for comfort. In this world, I expect tribulation, and it does not now, as formerly, appear strange to me. I don't in such seasons of difficulty flatter myself that it would be better hereafter, but rather think how much worse it might be, how much greater trials others of God's children have endured, not many, and how much greater are yet perhaps reserved for me. Blessed be God that He is the comfort to me under my sharpest trials. And scarce ever lets these thoughts be attended with terror or melancholy, but they are attended frequently with great joy. So in spite of these terrible external hardships that Brainerd knew, he pressed on, he even flourished under such tribulation. His goal, his focus, his own only desire was to work for the advance of the kingdom. Now, as, uh, as Pastor Eric Friel mentioned briefly about the life of Brainerd, there were times also where he struggled to love the Indians to whom he was called. Now, if love is known as sacrifice, then he very much loved the Indians. But if it's also known by heartfelt compassion, then he struggled to love uh, more than he wanted to often mention how much he wanted to have a love for these people. But sometimes, uh, sometimes also, though, he was melted with love. It was a back and forth and up and down. September 18, 1742, felt some compassion for souls and mourned I had no more. I felt much more kindness, meekness, gentleness, and love toward all mankind than ever before. December 26, 1742, felt much sweetness and tenderness in prayer, especially my whole soul seemed to love my worst enemies and was enabled to pray for those that are strangers and enemies to God with a great degree of softness and pathetic fervor. Other times he seemed very void of affection or any compassion for their souls whatsoever. Even though his expulsion from Yale earlier on initially hindered his entering the pastorate, turned him to uh, consider a missionary career to go to the Indians, uh, the missionary call that he felt from the Lord was not abandoned when other opportunities arose in the pastorate. Eventually things came along. He was asked by several churches, uh, gave them several opportunities to have a much easier life. To not be uh, burdened with all of these difficulties, he could simply be the minister in a comfortable church. A few opportunities uh, to note. The church at Millington, near his hometown, called him on March 1744. He describes this as a great care and burden. He turned it down. He prayed that the Lord would send laborers to his vineyard. 
The church at East Hampton on Long Island called him as well. Now, Jonathan Edwards said of this congregation, it was the fairest, pleasantest town on the whole island and one of its largest and most wealthiest parishes. And Brainerd wrote on Thursday, April 5th, resolved to go on still with the Indian affair, if divine providence permitted. Although before felt some inclination to go to East Hampton, where I was solicited to go. He had several opportunities arise, but each time the struggle was resolved with a sense of burden. He sensed his call to the Indian people. He wanted to fulfill it. I could have no freedom in the thought of any other circumstance or business in life. All my desire was the the conversion of the heathen, and all my hope was in God. God does not suffer me to please or comfort myself with hopes of seeing friends, returning to my dear acquaintances, and enjoying worldly comforts. So there was obviously a struggle here as he worked through these things. But he held on to a readiness to suffer and a passion to see the kingdom of Christ expanded amongst those who did not know the Lord. Now, Brainerd, when he was in a proper frame of mind, not burdened down with great depression, he had a passion, and you read of it constantly, to press on for the sake of God's kingdom. He was consumed with a passion to finish the race and to honor his master, to spread the kingdom, to advance in personal holiness. This is something you read of constantly in his diary. It's remarkable and it will cause more than a few questions in your own devotion to the things of God and your own awareness of your own heart. This is a man who is very aware of the condition of his heart, constantly um, meditating on uh, on the things that he would think of and the sins in his life and the very private sins that he endured. Brainerd called his passion for more holiness and more usefulness a kind of pleasing pain. He said, When I really enjoy God, I feel my desires of Him the more insatiable and my thirsting after holiness the more unquenchable. I hope all of us can have experienced that on some level. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. Oh, that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey. He sought, Ephesians 5.16, to redeem the time. April 17, 1747. Oh, I long to, feel, to fill the remaining moments all for God. Though my body was so feeble and wearied with preaching and much private conversation, yet I wanted to sit up all night to do something for God. To God, the giver of these refreshments, be glory forever and ever. February 21st, 1746. My soul was refreshed and comforted, and I could not but bless God who had enabled me in some good measure to be faithful to the day past. Oh, how sweet it is to be spent and worn out. For God. Now, among all the means that David Brainerd used for pursuing greater and greater holiness and usefulness for the kingdom of God, prayer and fasting were the two things that stood out above, above all others. He spent entire days in prayer, and sometimes uh, through the day, he set aside six specific times of the day that he would pray, and he would often seek out family or friends if they were around to pray with him. He prayed for his own sanctification. He prayed for the conversion and the purity of the Indians. 
He prayed for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ around the world and especially in America. And sometimes the spirit of prayer would hold him so deeply that he could scarcely stop. And he makes comment of this. Once he's visiting a home with friends and he got alone to pray. And here's what he wrote of that. He said, I continued wrestling with God in prayer for my dear little flock here and more especially for the Indians elsewhere, as well as for dear friends in one place and another, till it was bedtime, and I feared that I should hinder the family. So he didn't want to keep them awake because of his praying. But oh, with what reluctance did I find myself obliged to consume time in sleep. Wow. He often wrote in his diary of praying unto great perspiration. He sometimes sweat so much in his fervency of prayer that he became very cold in his environment because he was outside. I've never prayed unto great perspiration. It's an amazing uh, thing to read in his diary. Along with prayer, Brainerd pursued holiness and usefulness with fasting. Again and again in his diary, he tells of days spent in fasting. He fasted for guidance when he didn't know what to do next in his ministry. He fasted simply with the deep hope of making greater advances in his own spiritual depth and his usefulness in bringing new birth to the Indians. When he was dying in Edward's home, he urged young ministers. Many came to visit him, to, uh, to receive wisdom from him, and to encourage him as well. He urged all of them to engage in frequent days of private prayer and fasting because of its usefulness. Edwards himself said, Among all the many days he spent in secret fasting and prayer, and that he gives an account of in his diary, there is scarce an instance of one but what was either attended or soon followed with apparent success and a remarkable blessing in special incomes and consolations of God's Spirit, and very often before the day was ended. Along with prayer and fasting, Brainerd uh, bought up the time with study. And he, he mingled all three of these things together. He wrote a lot about his writing and about the things that he loved to write and study. I spent much of the day in writing, but was enabled to intermix prayer with my studies. Spent this day in seriousness with steadfast resolution for God and a life of mortification. Studied closely till I felt my bodily strength fail. So you see, Brainerd's life was this long, agonizing strain to redeem the time. And what makes his life so powerful is that he pressed on in this passion under the immense struggles and hardships that he did. And we would probably look at his life and say, to a fault, that had he backed away a little bit in the midst of his sickness, that perhaps he would have lived a while longer. But he didn't, and the Lord did with him as he did. Jonathan Edwards wrote some concluding reflections about David Brainerd's life and death. He wrote, I would conclude my observations on the merciful circumstances of Mr. Brainerd's death without acknowledging with thankfulness the gracious dispensation of providence to me and my family in so ordering that he should be cast hither to my house in his last sickness and should die here so that we had opportunity for much acquaintance and conversation with him and to show him kindness in such circumstances, and to see his dying behavior, to hear his dying speeches, to receive his dying counsels, 
and to have the benefit of his dying prayers. Now, what Edward said is remarkable because most likely having David Brainerd in his house and allowing his daughter Jerusha to be his nurse cost her her life. Jerusha uh, tended to him for the last 19 weeks of his life, and four months after David Brainerd died, Jerusha died of the same affliction. So Edwards really meant what he said when he said that it was a gracious dispensation of providence that he came to our house to die. Now, the effect of David Brainerd's life on the church and the missionary uh, movement is incalculable. But I don't think it's an overstatement to say that hundreds of missionaries from the Western Hemisphere have been inspired, have been encouraged, and have been challenged by the diary and journals of David Brainerd. And the modern missionary movement would be far less than it is today without his influence. In fact, it's not a stretch to say that over the last 250 years, missionary endeavors would only be a fraction of what they are were it not for the motivation of Brainerd's life and works. And you see that in, uh, in many of the writings of other missionaries. Now, to close, I want to highlight the fact that the most awesome effect of Brainerd's ministry is the same as the most awesome effect of any pastor's ministry, any missionary's ministry, or any ministry of each of us as we endeavor to grow the kingdom of God. And that is, there are a few Indians, perhaps several hundred Indians, who owe their everlasting life to the direct love and ministry of David Brainerd. Who can describe the value of one soul transferred from the kingdom of darkness, from the weeping and gnashing of teeth, to the kingdom of God's dear Son. It's incalculable. And if we live 29 years, or if we live 99 years, would not any hardship we endure in this life be worth the saving of one from eternal punishment and torment from hell? to have everlasting life and joy in Christ. I think it is important that we highlight this as His motivation, as His joy, as His desire, and as the greatest impact as He's had on this world. I want to close by reading the final journal entries of Brainerd. Now, through this, there are a few comments from Jonathan Edwards uh, regarding his last hours of life. Um, He's going to write in here, he writes about John, who's his brother, who is awaiting to have come um, to see uh, prior to his passing. So here's about the last nine days of his life, short journal entries. Thursday, October 1st. I endeavored again to do something by way of writing, but soon found my powers of body and mind utterly fail. Felt not so sweetly as when I was able to do something that I hoped would do some good. In the evening was discomposed with holy and wholly delirious. But it was not long before God was pleased to give me some sleep and fully compose my mind. Oh, blessed be God for His great goodness to me since I was so low in Mr. Broomfield's on Thursday, June 18th last. He has, except those few minutes, given me the clear exercise of my reason and enabled me to labor much for Him in things both of a public and private nature and perhaps to do more good than I should have done if I had been well 
besides the comfortable influence of his blessed spirit, with which he had been pleased to refresh my soul, may his name have all the glory forever and ever. This is nine days before he died. He's on his deathbed at the home of Jonathan Edwards. Friday, October 2nd. My soul was this day at turns sweetly set on God. I longed to be with him that I might behold his glory. I felt sweetly disposed to commit all to him, even my dearest friends, my dearest flock, my absent brother, and all my concerns for time and eternity. Oh, that his kingdom might come in the world, that they might all love and glorify him for what he is in himself, and that the blessed Redeemer might see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. These are the words of Jonathan Edwards. The next evening, we were very much expecting his brother John from New Jersey, it being about a week after the time he had proposed for his return when he went away. And though our expectations were still disappointed, Mr. Brainerd seemed to continue unmoved in the same calm and peaceful frame that he had before manifested. And as having resigned all to God and having done with his friends and with all things here below. On the morning of the next day, being the Lord's Day, as my daughter Jerusha, who chiefly attended him, came into the room, he looked on her very pleasantly and said, Dear Jerusha, are you willing to part with me? I am quite willing to part with you. I am willing to part with you. I am willing to part with all my friends. I am willing to part with my dear brother John, although I love him, the best of any creature living. I have committed him and all my friends to God and can leave them with God. Though if you have thought I should not see you and be happy with you in another world, I could not bear to part with you. But we shall spend a happy eternity together. And in the evening, as one came into the room with a Bible in her hand, he expressed himself thus. Oh, that dear book, that lovely book, I shall soon see it opened. The mysteries that are in it and all the mysteries of God's providence will all be unfolded. His distemper now very apparently preyed on his vitals in an extraordinary manner and was attended with very inward pain and distress. On Tuesday, October 6th, he lay for a considerable time as if he were dying, at which time he was heard to utter in broken whispers such expressions as these. He will come. He will not tarry. I shall soon be in glory. I shall soon glorify God with the angels. But after some time, he revived. The next day, Wednesday, Wednesday, October 7th, his brother John arrived from New Jersey where he had been detained much longer than he intended by a mortal sickness prevailing among the Christian Indians and by some other circumstances that made his stay with them necessary. Mr. Brainerd was affected and refreshed with seeing him and appeared fully satisfied with the reason of his delay, seeing the interest of religion and the souls of his people requiring it. The next day, he was in great distress and agonies of body, and for the greater part of the day was much disordered as to the exercise of his reason. In the evening he was more composed and had the use of his reason well, but the pain of his body continued and increased. He told me it was impossible for any to conceive of the distress he felt in his breast. I read that earlier. Notwithstanding his bodily agonies, the interest of Zion lay still with great weight on his mind. As appeared by some considerable discourse, he had that evening with the Reverend Mr. Billing, one of the neighboring ministers, concerning the great importance of the work of the ministry. 
Afterwards, when it was very late in the night, he had much very proper and profitable discourse with his brother John concerning his congregation in New Jersey and the interest of religion among the Indians. In the latter part of the night, his bodily distress seemed to rise to a greater height than ever. And he said to those then about him that it was another thing to die than people imagine, explaining himself to mean that they were not aware what bodily pain and anguish is undergone before death. Towards day, his eyes fixed, and he continued lying immovable till about six o'clock in the morning, and then expired on Friday, October 9th, 1747 when his soul, as we may well conclude, was received by his dear Lord and Master as an eminently faithful servant into the state of perfection of holiness and fruition of God, which he had so often and so ardently longed for, and was welcomed by the glorious assembly in the upper world as one peculiarly fitted to join them in their blessed employ and enjoyment. Much respect was shown to his memory at his funeral which was on Monday following after a sermon preached the same day. His funeral was attended by eight of the neighboring ministers and 17 other gentlemen and a great concourse of people. And that's how his diary ends. So David Brainerd died on February, October, uh, Friday, October 9th, 1747 at the age of 29. We praise God in our remembrance of him and the impact of his life and ministry in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for David Brainerd and for men like him. I pray, God, for each of us that we could have even but a glimpse of your glory in the way that he experienced you. In the way that he often remarked of your goodness and your sweetness and his communion with you. God, we long to experience that in our own lives. I pray, God, that each of us would know of you in the way that he has, that we would rejoice in your love for us, that we would delight in what you have done through men such as him. And Lord, we long to know what you will do in our day to make your name great amongst the nations. We praise God for David Brainerd and for his life and ministry, but more so we praise you for who you are, for what Christ has accomplished, and for making your name great and allowing us to take part in that. Lord, help us to understand that David Brainerd was a man like us, and yet a man, as John Piper has said, of whom the world is not worthy. We're grateful to have such a testimony and to have such... Um, writings available to us that we can look into his heart and be encouraged and stirred to greater devotion and love for Christ. Lord, bless us tonight as we reflect on these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.